0: Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode if you'd like to hear the extended uncut edition you can for as little as one dollar a month by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events and so on and so on and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash but you know that again.
1: Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, Trent here again, hope you're having a great week. Before we get to this week's episode, a reminder as always that you can support Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network in a variety of ways if you'd like to do it from a financial Uh, standpoint we would be entirely grateful Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge as little as one dollar a month and for that you'll get extended episodes of bookshambles every week Uh, some behind the scenes stuff uh, free ticket offers Uh, we're regularly offering tickets out to various events that we do or you can go to CosmicShambles.com slash shop and pick yourself up a treat or a present for someone there. Uh, there's signed copies of Robin's book. There's comic books, book bags, shirts, all the sort of stuff you'd expect from an online store associated with Cosmic Shambles. Or you can come and see us at one of our live events. The next one is August 27 at the RI for the launch of Dean Burnett's new book, British Science Festival, Signals Tour, Nine Lessons, Compendium, Sea Shambles, all that stuff, cosmicshambles.com, uh, and go to the events pages for all that information. But enough of that. Here is this week's episode. This is Robin, guest co host Beck Hill once more, and the winner of the most recent Welcome Book Prize, Will Eaves. Mm-hmm.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, and Josie's busy again. So, really, it's Beck and Robin's Book Shambles. I'm joined by Beck Hill uh, Hi. again. It's, fact, I'll I do my best Josie more,
2: impression. You've
0: done more this year than she has, so it is really Beck and Robin's Book Shambles.
2: Oh, no, don't pit us against each other. No, I think,
0: I think it will create an interesting dynamic. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, this is it's the whatever happened to Baby Jane scenario that I've yeah. been trying to get you and Josie uh, in for some time. Uh, and we're joined by someone who's written... It's, it's certainly it's one of my favourite books of, of 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 the year. I, I read it last week. Uh, it is it's fantastic. It's a a, a book that is um, very much based. Really, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's fair to say fiction. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, a, it, yes, it's, it's, novel, it's a yeah. it's a fiction, but it is inspired very much by uh, the later life of Alan Turing, uh, the, the the hormone punishment that he was uh, sentenced to, and the possibilities of the the dream work in inside mm-hmm. his mind around this yeah. time. And it's very beautiful. So we're joined by, by Will Eves, who is also the winner of the Welcome Book Prize this year. Oh,
3: very nice to be here, Robin. Thank you for asking me on, Anne-Beck.
0: And I think this is the second time that, because as far as I remember, last year it was A. Obama Adebayo's book that won the Welcome Prize, which again is a book that is 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 a, a novel and welcome I'd always, for some reason, for a long time, I thought the Welcome Prize was for science non-fiction.
3: I think, actually, I think the winner last year was... Um, it was a book about men and machines, but I think it was Mark O'Connell, wasn't it? Machi- oh, was it not? I uh, thought Ayobam Adebayo won it with uh, her novel. Maybe no, you're right. I, I think it was. Maybe that was on the short list, but I think it was. She should um, have won. Yeah, she. It should It was <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, it's an amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: So we'll just start off just on this book.
0: How do you get? Well, I'll ask you why why you wanted to write this. I mean, it's it's there's so many different ideas in this, and mm. in, in terms of of neuroscience, in terms of different ideas of of, of consciousness, of dreams, and indeed also of the ideas that, that obviously does have a political uh, element to yeah. it in terms of dealing with the, the the punishment that Alan Turing
3: was given. I mean, I think the thing is that rather like consciousness itself, all those things were sort of emergent processes. <laughs> you know, I didn't really. I didn't really have an idea at the start. Oh, I want to write about the later life of Alan Turing and I want it to be, you know, about, you know, his um, the taking the Stilberstrol and sort of, you know, sort of having a deformed body and growing these sort of substitute mammary deposits that are almost breasts. I didn't think of it like that. I was actually... Most of the books I write, and I'm very slow, come out of just a sort of seed, a germ, which is an image or a peculiar, attractive situation I find myself in, and this particular situation wasn't very attractive. Actually, I was sort of in exile from myself. I was in Australia, and um, I just uh, a relationship had ended. I was doing a job I didn't like very much, and I felt um, I felt sort of divorced from. Myself, a sort of disequilibrium was really uh, sort of painful, and normally I'm quite, you know, funny and happy and relaxed, and and I was just going through a bit of a tough time. So I sort of decided, well, I'm not going to um, write with any plan. I'm going to write purely imagistically, and I will try and write to the moment and what I'm feeling. Happened to have quite a lot of back pain at the time. So I just sort of began writing about this bloke in a room looking in the mirror and not quite recognising himself. And that seemed to bring up questions about doubling and not feeling that you are your reflection, or rather that the reflection has an independent quality of existence. Mm. So that immediately makes you think about what a reproduction of a human might be. Mm. Uh, is a sort of mechanical version, a, is, it, is it a reflection or is it an autonomous entity? And as soon as you begin to think about that, you begin to think about AI. And as soon as you think about AI, you get back to Alan Turing quite quickly.
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, because whenever I take a selfie, it uh, looks far better than yeah. I do in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? And, and there's also something about,
3: you know, our, the relationship between our physical bodies and who we think we are. Yeah. is absolutely fundamental to all of neuroscience, all of philosophy of mind. Um, and it's a, it's a big problem. You know, How do we get um, that very inward, irreducible personal sense of ourselves to fit the material characteristics we have? And the answer is actually that they don't fit terribly well. We, we're pretty certain that mind comes out of body and material stuff, but we don't yet quite know how. We don't know how we get that first-person experience. And Turing's tragedy was precisely this: that as a hardline material scientist, he saw all these things happen to his body, but his sort of irreducible self was something else inside, and the pain that he experienced is something he couldn't find a very good material explanation for. So that makes you think about what the relationship is between pain and emotion and the body. So that's kind of where I was going with it and that's that's how it started. The same, when
0: we are confronted by the exterior reality that everyone else sees of us I think you know we always find it difficult as you said you know photos reflections all of those things that, that as we walk around the world we're looking out all the time and every time we suddenly go it's like my son the other day uh, um, when I was going away to Australia for a while and I've, I've not seen much of him this year just I've been on tour a lot and I said ah he loves Andy Stanton who's a wonderful children do you know Andy Stanton's work Beck?
2: I, I I've had a conversation with uh, with someone else about him so I haven't I don't know it but my oh, he's so good my friend's and he kids did, are
0: crazy for it. He did, he, they're really funny, stupid, wonderful, absurd stories. And so he he read, we recorded on a Zoom mic, him reading one of the stories so I could take it mm-hmm. with me and I could listen to it and and I would have a bit of him with me. And obviously he's never heard of it, even though he's 11 years old, he'd not heard a recording of himself before. And he had that experience yeah. that we've all had of going, oh, oh. That my voice sounds weird, and I go no, yeah. no, no. Actually, that is how your voice is. I said, but it's just there's a lot of different things going on. The way that you hear your voice in your head, and what you, you know, your yeah. voice, the the way it reverberates in your ears, and all these things compared to actually what people hear, and it's like so those different things, the reflection, the voice that we have, all of those things, they make, they can still, they can, our reality, it can still sicken us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it. a
3: very powerful thing. It's also the essence of comedy, of course. You know, if you look at something like The Office, you know, David Brent, the whole basis of that show. And arguably, the kind of essence of most great dramatic comedy is that someone's got an idea of themselves, <laughs> which is absolutely at odds with what everyone else makes of them and with the reality, the objective reality. That's the mm. whole point of it. You know, Brent thinks he's a mastermind. Actually, you know, he's a dickhead. <laughs> it is. It's a, I mean, I think in, in stand up, we see a lot
0: of that now in a good way. A lot of stand ups are more and more taking the things that are, are, are hidden. And just placing them in front of people, and sometimes you know there's the horror of the audience, and very often the audience then come up and go, "Oh God, I thought it was only me." And you know, and that moment, (laughs) and I think that's actually when stand up is very often at its most useful, is when it is saying to people, "You're not alone." This is, uh," and because for most people, you know, anyone, any form of different art is is a revealing of you know very often
3: bits of the what can be considered to be the shameful side, and you you, you place it. It's an interesting one that isn't it? Because I think that. Um, you know, you can oversell the idea that we have this, uh, as I said earlier, this irreducible personal aspect, subjective aspect mm. to ourselves. You can sort of lean on that too hard. And sometimes you get the best answers to this sort of problem from unlikely sources. Like Somerset Maugham just said, you know, we all go on about people being individuals. But actually, we, we, you know, we, we press that too hard. We're, we're, we're not distinct to quite the degree that we imagine Mm. What you find actually is that most people, although they have specialized tasks, and that's one sort of evolutionary definition of the human being is that we do different things, we often do them in quite similar ways. You know, we're not oh, that yeah. different from yeah. each
2: other. Mm.
3: And I, I mean, I find that very appealing and true that however lonely or terrible something might like be, or however hilarious, it's not that far removed from something someone else is going through somewhere else. And that suspicion I think we have quite hardwired into us, which is why we have lots of sort of um, uh, suspicions and superstitions about doppelgangers and things. Mm. We know that there is something very like us, probably not that far away. We know that our sense of self is, is probably almost reproduced a fair number of times in the world.
2: Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. And just what what I um just going back to the idea when you start to realize that someone else shares those qualities. And some, sometimes it's great. So that's how you meet a best friend when you realize that you've thought the same way about the same thing. Yeah. But then other times obviously it can get be very frustrating because they share the same faults as you <laughs> and it's infuriating <laughs> to see that on another person and then and go, "Oh, I hate that because that's what I do." Yeah. Um but uh, what I loved about the um about the book, and what, I've got to say it's eerie because I've been traveling a lot. I can't read when I travel i get I get travel sick. so I've been listening to the audiobook. so it's really surreal because now your voice in my head is the voice of Turing and, oh.
3: <laughs> from
2: from hand. so it's quite weird now because I feel like I'm talking to a Alan
3: people. Turing slowly yeah. evolving his <laughs> grave. <laughs> yeah.
2: But what I loved about it is that you that you um you went in on this personal side that I'd never well i'm quite late to loving science and and i i think of people's achievements i don't think of them as humans Mm. with with imaginations with they they daydream they let their minds wander they think Mm. about these things that's what i loved about the book and how um it goes off on these just moments of where it doesn't quite make sense but i really because i was like oh i do that oh we all do that oh oh we're so similar (laughs) Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is that he. Uh... Not. I'm not saying I'm similar to Turing. <laughs> I just mean as a general human beings.
3: Well, first, I, two things there. One is that um, you know it is a fiction, and I've and I've I've created a sort of avatar of Turing because I didn't want to be accused of putting you know words into a, a genius's mouth. I think that was quite important to make that straight. But I think. Um, about his kind of down-to-earthness. I mean, what I wanted was a tone. I'm sort of obsessed with tone in books. Mm. I like it, it's more important to me than plot. And I think if something's got a believable tone, it seems to go in at a kind of intravenous level to me as a reader. And I think no, I absolutely, I, I feel there's a sort of in deep internal consistency to this invention that I like. And it doesn't matter what kind of book. It could be, you know, something by Graham Chapman. I used to love the, um, Elia's autobiography, of one of the ex-Pythons. It's an incredibly funny book, and it's got a very consistent comic tone. Or it can be Proust, or it can be, you know, it really can be anything. But I think it was very important to get the tone of someone who is both brilliant and an ordinary person mm. undergoing devastating change.
2: Mm.
3: And that, it took me quite a while to get that right because you have to you know it's writing books a bit like sculpture you know you've just got this block of stuff and you're hacking away at it to find the shape and you have to do a, a lot of hacking really and mm. then you realise that um, the shape's not coming together and you're running out of material so you've got to sort of put stuff back on it's it's very strange you know. I was so.
2: talking about this with someone recently how sculpt, the sculpture analogy it gets myself I've used it a lot I realised I know more I know more people who, you, like, I probably know more authors than I do sculptors. And yet, <laughs> yeah. the sculpture thing, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that makes it make more sense. Whereas, like, yeah. but anyway, sorry, it's just a thought I had the other day. I was like, Sorry, not I don't actually know any sculptors. But, uh, boy, do I know that analogy. It's, yeah, it's but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. What was your preparation for that? Can the... I just
0: say that, by the way, if you are a sculptor and you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> Becky's on social media and she'd very much like to meet you. So uh, yes! if you have sculpted, yeah. you'd like to meet up uh, with uh, a writer and a comedian. Yeah, do good. you start with a massive
2: yeah. material and then chip it out? Because in my head, that's exactly what happens. I don't want any sculptors who build from, from you know, the skeleton outwards. Well, but also, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. How can
0: you, with words... <laughs> again, you're moving into... It is because of the solidity of it, isn't it? There is mm. something yeah. solid with that. Actually, how, you know, when people say to you, they go, how do you come up with your jokes? Well, there isn't... There's no way you can go well, it's very simple. There's a five-point thing if yeah. I come up with jokes. I can't joke, you know, because uh, I was walking by a canal and for some reason, by about three different steps, something within the motion of the water and the movement of the mallard duck led to a joke that I did about internal combustion engines. But there's no... <laughs> I, if you actually... I, I am unable to show you that 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 process, but somewhere along The line goes bing, there we are.
2: Here's a joke
0: for
3: you,
2: and it's really looking at a page,
3: it's rhythm and process, isn't it? It's Mm. this sort of strange thing. And actually, sculpture, of course, you start with very often, you in many materials, you have a little maquette to begin with, you have smaller preparatory versions, Mm. tryouts, and that's quite like comedy. You know, you've got to have a tryout thing. You've got it. You've got you know. You've got the joke. Then you've got the proto set. Then you've got the thing with just a few people. Then you've got the tryout gig. Then you've got the tour. Um, and actually, that is quite sculptural. Mm. You know, you do everything. There's drawing, maquette, um, armature, plaster, first small version of the bronze, then the bronze. So it's you know. The trouble
0: is that we, I suppose, the difference very often, depending on people's process, but is very often we, the first exhibition we do is with the really lumpy shit which we've just chiseled <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and it goes that. So, so we require, whereas the sculptors go, I'm not showing that lump of marble yet. Yeah. It really is, you know, cack-handed. I was into, there. are two things that I found. One of the things reading your book, I, I went round the, the fantastic exhibition by, uh, of Dorothea Tanning's work at the uh, Tate Modern, and she talks about that beautiful thing, uh, which is a, a lot of her early work is, is both mirrors and doors. She was fascinated in what what is through the door, how many doors and mirrors. And at one point, she said, "You know." I, I was—I used to paint on this side of the mirror, and now I realise that I've gone round to the other side. Mm. And I thought that yeah. was a, a beautiful way of looking at the change in her work and her perception.
3: Yeah, it's a—it's lo- a lovely thing, isn't it? And I mean, mirrors are so important to the whole kind of surrealist project. Quite often, you have a sense about things in the mirror that they've been waiting for you. Mm. There's a lovely scene at the end of a Penelope Fitzgerald novel. Where she just says this this boy opens a door to some sort of green room. It's a theatrical novel, and suddenly catches sight of himself in the makeup mirror, that's you know on the other side of the room, and he sees his reflection, as if it had been waiting for him. Mm. And it's just you, it's all you need. Now, Hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's just a fa- that's a lovely idea that it's been there all the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> mr James does that all that the
0: time. That's beautiful. He's the reflection that arrived too early. Yeah, is uh... yeah. I was at, I was talking with Philippa Perry yesterday doing a, a, the Latitude Festival, and there was something else again that reminded me of what you're doing. Some of the things that you do in the book, which is, she said, what she said in the past, actually, one of the hardest things about being human is. Exterior and interior. So we judge everyone else from their exterior, and we judge ourselves from the interior. Which means there's always a shortfall because it like someone the other day I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a performer, and both of us are also have an enormous amount of anxiety, which is never on display yeah. in any social thing. Uh, Actually,
3: mine is mine is almost always, always on display. <laughs> oh, um,
0: but it's such a and so. You know, you you see people and you think, oh, they're they're really relaxed and they're they're doing great and they're very, very happy. And inside you're going, you know, it's that thing, you're at a party and you go, God, everyone else is socialising so well. Everyone else is so, look at them all having a lovely time. And actually, you're doing jokes and chatting as well. So you don't know how many of us are all stood in that room going, ah, you know, and that that disparity. And both sides are true, of course. What we project is, is, you know, that's the problem, isn't it? Which is we have this thing where we go, the real you. Is the person screaming inside? And you go, no, yes. that's 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 a bit of you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And and so and if I felt in this, you know, again, this the two sides that, that 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 we're seeing here. What what people may be judging from the exterior and what may well be going on in the interior seem to be, I've, I felt anyway.
3: Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, I think people are really. I, I I I'm very interested in this kind of relationship between you know, uh, the soul and the mind, if you like, all these mm. things we haven't quite pinned down yet, and the body. Um, it's you know, the mind-body problem is a problem because it's a problem we haven't solved it yet. But uh, I think that people are really sort of onions. We're layers. And the interesting thing about an onion is not really the fact that it's just layers, it but the fact isn't there isn't a, a centre. Right, you know, yeah. There's, there's no centre, really. So, you so you're saying
2: ultimately onions are soulless.
3: It's... I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that what I mean is that the... The sum of all those layers is clearly a person who is also a body. Mm. But if you take away just the physical characteristics, okay, you never get to some irreducible, you know, essence, some person at the corner, because somehow. The layers, the physical layers, and the mind and the soul are wrapped up together. They are the same thing. And I think my bet in the book is that it's not so much that there's really a split between mind and body, it's that we don't yet, it's a very simple idea, we don't yet understand matter well enough. We don't understand what it is in matter that has this other peculiar dimension that seems to produce a sense of individuality and all the kind of qualia of sensation and, you know, emotions that you can't actually point to with scientific method very easily.
0: qualia thing is, uh, I was chatting to... I, I, can't, I won't name names now, but someone who I find a little bit odd. And uh, <laughs> I was chatting to a friend of mine. We were talking about all the things where we just go, I don't understand how he believes these things. And she was talking about qualia and, and he said, what's that? And she said, well, you know, the simplest thing is the redness of red and as mm. a photon hits your eye and he went, oh, I don't believe in those. She said what? She said I don't believe in photons. And I was like, how could you just go? oh, No, no, no. That's not the process. Photons, I think, are a myth. And, and you go, oh, very bizarre. Yeah. So it's... so once you've reached that point, I don't think you're going to, to ever get really round to dealing with the mind-body problem if no, you've got not. someone who's a photon no, denier. No, no, but it's the first so time I've specific. met. I've, I've known about. I never knew this person that I've met before was a photon denier. I like that as a, a title. New photon Level. denier. Yeah. That's very good. It's like we were talking before about, uh, because we're recording this on the 22nd of July, so this weekend was the anniversary of, uh, of the moon landing, and I was just telling you that fantastic thing Kevin Fong uh, was saying that uh, when he sometimes has people who say, I don't believe we land on the moon, he says, I don't believe we won the World Cup in 1966 he said because why have we only ever done it once and he got this great <laughs> such a lovely uh, I thought lovely. Again, in terms of dealing with different forms of, of strange denialism oh. it's, it's, a le- it's, it's, it's a good joke it doesn't mm. seem too facetious either and it has a, a, a good plan to it um, sorry
2: I was just going to quickly flag that I brought a book which will be a lovely link to the, what we're talking about right now we'll bring At the, the book end out of the now oh, oh, e- oh do you want oh, to wait for the end let's have it as a cliffhanger um <laughs>
0: Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know uh, about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Will, when you're writing a book like this, uh, what is your process as well in terms of research? Because as you said, it is, what I it's, know, it's yeah. a fictional uh, account but at the same time much of what is in there i i, I think you know it re- reflects certainly so much of 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 the science of mm. of, of the understandings of misunderstanding of ideas of mm. of, of consciousness mm. uh it,
3: it it was um i mean it's it's difficult to sort of talk about this without sounding as if you 're you know um chalking up your sort of research achievements on the board, which it, it, it's... This is its is a place it's, to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, ple- it's a pleasure to do the research. It, it was very laborious because I'm not a scientist, um, although I have... So I'm, I'm kind of a musician, so I've always been interested in proportions and harmony and, you know, the, the way that works, which is inherently mathematical, really. Mm. So I found myself getting very interested in um, the metamathematics that Turing was very interested in the 30s, which is all about the kind of completeness of systems, you know, whether you can be consistent and complete at the same time in logical systems. And it turns out that um, you can't really, there's always a, no system is fully complete, or if it's complete, it's going to be inconsistent. Um, And this was something that an Austrian mathematician called Kurt Gödel was extremely interested in. And there's a lot about paradox in this and the liar's paradox, you know, whether you're telling the truth or whether you're lying. And so I found all that area of logic and philosophy really really interesting, but it's very thorny it's very kind of tricksy and you have to go very slowly through it. So it did take me about five years of reading before I felt I had a handle on most of that and could find a dramatic paraphrase for it, you know in Turing's work. Um because he was really interested in this thing called the Entscheidungs problem, the decision problem. Uh, and he, he's really thinking along the same lines as Gödel. You know, is there is there an algorithm that exists that can tell you um, whether a statement or another process in mathematics is going to have a result, whether it's true? And it turns out, you would think if it's a kind of complete four-square system, Mm. that that, that such a thing must exist. It turns out it isn't. It turns out that because of the relationship of a mathematical system to itself, it turns out that there are many true statements in mathematics that can't be proved. Hmm. Okay? And this, it seems to me, has a direct and very, very um, long and rather sickening relationship With our sense of the relationship between something that is known, physical, a body, and the self at the end of it. I think there's something about a true statement that can't be proved that's a bit like having a brain, where there's also a mind. You don't quite know how the mind comes from the brain. Mm. It has an odd relationship to the the, the bit that you do understand and can see and study. And I think those two things are really... That's the twin engine of the book, that, that the, the analogy between the mathematical process and the biological one. See, what fascinates me about when you explain that now is how do you refine
0: and reduce that? Because the thing that I found particularly wonderful about the book is... Every paragraph you end up underlining something. There's always an idea in it. There are it, it is for, for for such a thorny issue, for such a complex issue, for so many ideas which for many of us we, we haven't really approached before. Or we might have read the odd article in you know American yeah. Scientists or whatever. But you seem to refine in, in terms of combining the poetry of the ideas mm. and the information. So I you know Loads
3: I, of I, notes, Robin. Loads and, how,
0: loads and loads. of notes. Mean, this, this book is—it's it, very short. You yeah, know, which it's against else, yeah. which I really enjoy. Authors, please, over three hundred <laughs> pages is not required. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one hundred and sixty pages, and and it and it feels dense, not in an unapproachable way, it, it feels like you, you stop, yeah. you have lots of moments where you stop and you look mm. out the window and you start thinking about the experience you're having now and you, you go into the mind at the same time, you're going into a kind of biographical detail about yeah. someone and you're thinking about five different ideas and each paragraph seems to be you know, in, in, incredibly uh, condensed. In terms, I of feels of like It feels
2: like a really, really intricate meal.
0: Yeah. Like 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 <laughs> yes. everything's been
2: cooked and prepared perfectly and then put in this certain way and yeah. this comes in and then and then you're left with something smaller than its parts but so dense and rich. It's a rich reduction, and... yeah. I, yes, I, I mean yeah. I... not
0: like one of those fucking tasting menus. <laughs> oh god, I had to go and do one of those the other day because a rich friend of mine when we were on tour. said, let's say they go on forever. It's not yeah, like that terrible, by the time the it? fifth course you go, stop explaining the wine. And yes. I don't care what you've done to the lettuce. Also, this is too long.
3: <laughs> I don't like small portions in restaurants. I have to say, I'm, anyway, that's another thing. But um, Do you a, know
0: what? A small risotto is frankly an insult. Yeah. Sometimes as as like they just
2: give you one, yeah. yeah, one piece of pasta and they're like, there you go.
3: Or a side salad that's like sort of... A leaf.
2: Oh yeah, in yeah. a bowl, garnish.
3: A yeah, mm. Gosh, the divide
0: between nourishment and and the decorous nature of food is is again yeah. another thorny issue. Oh, which yeah. You
2: can you I deal would love with, with... to see your notebook, though.
3: Well, yeah. So the the the, the, the well, there were many. I mean, there's base. The, the truth is that it it is um it's a winnowing you know process. I mean the, I think there's about eight to ten full scat size you know lever arch binders mm. full of stuff. So you – it's a very – and I didn't – you don't know where you're going with a book. I think when people say, oh, how did you write this? You? It's, there's a lot of legend management that goes on, you know. is you, you don't know. You, you We're all lost. And you, you – my – really, my method is I've got a sort of shape in mind, you know. And the shape is given by – there are some letters in this between um, the Turing character and the woman he nearly married from Bletchley. Um, who is not quite who she appears to be, cliffhanger. <laughs> um, but um, they frame the dream chapters, so it's like a kind of necklace effect. So I thought, I wanted to write something that had this kind of a neck, this delicate but strong structure, mm. like a necklace or a chain. Um, and you, you, you just keep that in mind as you're writing, as you're making notes. What sometimes happens, I mean, I teach... Uh, you know English and creative writing and I sometimes find with students that they want to have written a book they don't really (laughs) want to write it they want that kind of sort of confidence that comes from having done something but the process itself is just not like that Mm -hmm. you know you are mostly on your own and adrift so you need to find a way of giving yourself some confidence as you go along. For me, that's a kind of visual thing. I need to have this idea of a chain or an necklace. I need to have a sense of the shape I'm moving towards. And then I can then I can write.
2: Mm.
0: Who, when you were first thinking, I mean, at what point in your life did you think, oh, I want to be a writer. That's what I want to do. I want to, I've got stories in my head and I want to share those stories. And I know also you write poetry as well. At, at, at what point, In your childhood, in your, you know, whatever it was, adolescence, adulthood, Do you think this, I know, I've got stories and I want to share them.
3: That's interesting. I I, I don't have a very clear sense, vocational sense of myself as a writer. I think um, I've always been, uh, I obviously like doing the work, I obviously like the habit, but I don't really care particularly about being a writer and I don't think I ever have
2: you're like the opposite of all writers that I know yeah <laughs> I'm not you hate I, doing the writing he's very <laughs> like but, that sculptor
3: um, I know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I I think I've always sort of you know when I was a kid I uh, I had a brother I have a brother who um was a very good writer um and didn't carry on with it and we shared a room Uh, And I used to see him, you know, at his desks, writing this rather beautiful Gothic script. And he had these, he had a whole, with one shelf of Penguin Classics. And I just really loved those kind of plain black spines. And I used to think, oh, they they look really good. And I started reading without really understanding what I was reading. I just made myself go through them. But well, you know, the thing is about habits like that is that they breed an interest in the end. You start; it's like it's like music. You begin going, I don't know, what I'm but then suddenly a pattern emerges, and I think that's really where it all started. It was just imitating someone else and emulating what they do, and isn't isn't that why we, isn't that how we learn? Actually, full stop. It's always a kind of imitation, I think. And then, and
0: then I think you see that in a lot of artists, certainly in comedy. I think, you know, mm. I look back at some, um, some of the stuff and you go, oh, man, the influences are so clearly on display. Yeah. and That that was the interesting thing about, oh, man, I've forgotten his name now. The uh, the guy who wrote, um, David Keenan, who wrote This Is Memorial Device. And when I spoke to him uh, a couple of years back, just after that come out, and I think he, he wrote four or five books, which he destroyed. Which he he said, I'm I'm writing out my influences. I'm trying to before I actually finally pass on a manuscript of of of, of, of fiction. Uh, I'm trying to write out my influences till eventually I go. Right now, I've found a voice which I feel belongs more yeah. to me than those who who have.
3: Yeah, yeah. Mm. I and I think also I I I think that's very true. You you do. You know, it's the Beatles ten thousand hours, isn't it? It's it's that apprenticeship in at the level of interest. And that's a very, very, very important stage, gestational or larval stage, that I think you shouldn't be you shouldn't ever try to skip. I mean, in my case, I feel it just has gone on all my life. I don't think I've I think I'm very unlikely ever to reach a position where I think, okay, now I'm a writer. Um, it's not I don't think it's my judge it's not my call to make.
2: I find it fascinating. I'm, I'm sort of of, a, I'm of that um, cusp of between the internet and mobile phones not being a thing and then being a thing. Yeah. So I I remember the before and the after, um, but obviously that anyone who's younger than me, that that idea of seeing the books and then reading through them and then and developing a passion and an interest from that, I find that. It's so hard to get bored these days yeah. because we're, we're – so I just wonder with your students, do you find that, that – like how do their passions come about if in, in a world where if you're bored, you don't just pick up books and stay with them even if you're not interested and yeah. develop something. You just there move is, to no, It's a else. very,
3: very good – that's a very good point. I mean, I think there is generally – I don't want to talk on too psychotherapeutic, but I think there is a sort of fear of boredom in a way we've sort of it's become pathologized there has to be constant stimulation whereas actually one of the pleasures of reading is precisely the fact that it's um it, it, it's a kind of productive boredom in some ways you know you you have to wait for the and sometimes a long time yeah. for the engagement with the book to happen
2: yeah.
3: and the waiting is not lost time it's yeah. not bad time let's get a bit cheesed off with people who say you know oh i'm now so busy that you know if i i've i've learned I, i've i've read enough and if i've read <laughs> and if i've you know 50 pages in and it hasn't grabbed me then i'm sorry i just put it down and i just think well you're going to miss out on a lot yeah, yeah. you know and, and actually the chief thing you're going to miss out on is the pleasure of reading mm. which is not knowing when the touch paper will light i say
0: it's it's for there's nothing else in the world that makes me lose a sense of time as much as reading. Yeah, I've you know yeah. if I do actually have a morning off and I think I'm just going to get get have a hot bath and I'm going to start reading this book yeah. and then I go, oh my god, it's two and a half hours. And more than anything else, I I, yeah. I I can get and but it's it's interesting when you talk about boredom because when when I interviewed Alan Moore for my book, I'm a joke and so are you, which is available <laughs> uh, and uh, though not available, at the Latitude Festival after I did my talk, which was a pity, um, and uh, the uh, but Alan said one of his big worries was that there isn't enough boredom. He says, you know, when he was growing up in Northampton uh, in the 1960s and, you know, there's only a little bit of television on during the day yeah. and, you know, he had, had his comic books that he would go and buy when he had the pocket money and stuff like that. And he said that, that boredom was the, you know, how, how can I get out of this boredom? Yeah, yeah. And that's where the creativity, you know, when he would sit there and he would start to, you know, get his toy soldiers and turn them into something else with plasticine because otherwise it was boredom. Boredom
3: yeah, was yeah. just around a corner. Well, punk was all about boredom. You know, suburban boredom—that's what it came out of. Yeah, you know. all it's the a songs, frustration. All the songs are really about that. You know.
2: That's why you don't not, really yeah. get good punk these days.
3: <laughs> no, I think I think it's true. I think that students at the moment, what, what I know, what I noticed, what I think is very interesting is that they're they're very bright. You know, there's no there's been no diminution of intellect. Mm. Uh, what has happened is that something to do with cognitive absorption, rates, styles of absorbing information have changed markedly, which is having an effect on short-term memory retention. You know, so people are doing a lot of things at once. Yeah. They are doing things on several platforms. The mind is active, they're looking, but it's happening, it's like a digital recording. It's happening on one plane. Mm. There's no sort of acoustic or memorial depth to it, or very little, so it's quite hard to get people to remember appointments, um, remember what you were doing last week. Um, very difficult to get people to read back over their work, you know, oh, really? because they just it, it 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 exists as it's happening, yeah, and then it doesn't.
2: It's it's a it's a very interesting it's like thing. They've got loads of tabs open in the yeah. browser. Yeah. Yeah.
0: See, I'm terrible for that. I've always yeah. been like that, though, because I take on so many different things, so I want to do all of them. And everything, therefore, exists in an immediate thing. So when I have a deadline, I have to write an article about something. You know, I, I it's, it's all there. And it comes out and I, and I go and I have a quick read through and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that, I think that's all right. And then I put it and then I move on to the next thing. And well, so I mean, is I, think just... you're,
2: but I feel like you've got a certain depth to all the things that you that, that's why we're in a recording studio right now. And this wasn't an idea that you had once and then never followed up on. Like, I feel that there is a depth that you should allow yourself for your things. I think like I'm noticing a lot of anxiety with with younger people as well. And I think part of that is the fact that they're trying to remember everything at once, on one plane, as you say, there's Mm. no...
3: Yes, that might be... Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think just also, simple, obvious thing to say, I do really think secondary education in this country has become incredibly mechanistic. Mm. You know, Mm. there is just no space for people to do things that, you know, are not evaluated Yeah. in the classroom. I mean, I think they're kind of the mania for evaluation is sort of ruining quite a lot of the experience mm. of education which shouldn't just be about um it shouldn't just be about box ticking in exams a- and actually also gives a false idea you know some kind of bureaucrat in government has decided that you know stem subjects means just sort of having quantifiable questions and quantifiable answers. But actually, that's a huge misrepresentation of what most subjects, including very much science, Mm. are really about. We were talking about this earlier before we came into the studio. You know that actually really science is about a number of core principles that you test again and again. You, you push them quite hard to see what results they yield mm. and where the poorest bits are, you know, where the holes are in the theory. And there's not leisure to do that because there has to be an answer to everything. And I think that's really, really difficult for young people. So when it comes to university and you say to them, I want you to make mistakes, the only way you can get better at this is to take risks and make mistakes. You should see their faces. Like they're <laughs> completely white. You know. <gasps> just eyes. You know, because they because they want to get, you know, firsts.
2: So we were talking about photon deniers earlier. And that reminded me of one of the books I've brought today, which does sound like it's going to be a plug, but it's not. Um, it is the uh, the playtext for Kill Climate Deniers, which I'll, I'm not using it as a brag. It was a play I was in a couple of months ago. The front cover has Felicity Ward. Felicity Ward, who I saw fellow, the weekend, yeah. Yeah, fellow Australian comic. Um, also performed in it pregnant, uh, as you would have yeah. seen that she is heavily yeah. pregnant on the weekend. At uh, No point reference in the play whatsoever. Um, but uh, the reason I, I brought it in is because the play text. I was so excited to get asked to audition for this play because the playtext is absolutely... it's mind-blowing and and basically because david finnegan the playwright didn't think it would ever get put on so he just went well i'm just going to write it the way that i want so i'm just going to show you the first opening monologue uh to get an idea of what i mean um so as i show it to them i'll just describe it for the listeners basically it starts off with a monologue which slowly fades into the page (gasps) um and it's one of those things where there's other ones where there's lists in there and then words start appearing in other parts of the page and the book and everything. And as an actor, you go, I have no idea how to deliver this at all, um, which meant that we could do whatever we wanted when we did it. But it's called "Kill Climate Deniers and uh, purposefully, controversially, but it's um, it just got me thinking about deniers and, um, and what it is. One of the ways that he talks about it is sort of bringing it down to what is it that climate deniers are in denial about? Is it the fact that the climate's changing or is it something more? I don't want to give away too much, but it's um, it's it's one of those uh, texts, that play text, that when I got to the end of it, I just had to sit down for a moment and go make a cup of tea because I felt a bit, oh, not quite sure what I experienced. But it's, I mean, an, another example of just playing with the form is uh, there's a scene uh, towards the end here. And I will say that we ended up cutting out an hour of this play when we <laughs> put it on because it's about two and a half hours long. Um, but there is a scene at the back here somewhere where he's um, he's written the, uh, the, the dialogue and then um, shaded it over so you can't read it and then just put his own notes over the top of it, which says, uh, this is actually quite good dialogue, I think. And then on the next page it says, but we're not here for dialogue. <laughs> 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 and then <laughs> that's the whole scene and who you publishes can't...
0: that because I presume that's not necessarily going to be an award this starts. is with Oberon oh well, they're um, great Yeah, oh, okay. uh,
2: you can buy it from the Pleasants which is where it was performed um, if you're over at the Pleasants in London right. uh, in Islington or you can email them I think or order it over the phone but I do think there's a small uh, amount of them at the National Theatre Bookshop so it's more moment. like a
3: kind of score in a way than a play text isn't it yes. it's got that sort of yeah, you
2: know. yeah. I think that's a brilliant yeah. way to put it and yeah. it's the sort of thing where you can add your own sort of uh, yeah interesting, know, so there's a the,
3: the reading it is a performance as much as the actual putting on of the play,
2: yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it just it's one of those things that I think really yeah. plays with the form and and when I first started reading it, and I saw that first page where the and I told the playwright this because he is he's uh, he's a living playwright um uh the when I first got read the script, I read the first page where the writing fades out, and I thought. Oh, what pretentious wank is this? <laughs> and I thought I was going to hate it. And then within a couple more pages, I went, oh, no, this is delicious. Oh, I like this.
0: So that's your recommendation for the day. That's my recommendation. Uh, Will, what are you about to uh, read? What are your... Uh... Well,
3: funny thing you should say earlier, you know, um, oh, no, love, I'm sorry, i have got to cut this out because I left my books in there. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no, no, I put them Oh, in. No, there they no, are. No, 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 no. Well, what am I about to read? I'm sorry, I'm going to go back in time a bit. Um you mentioned picking up things you know again that rather than reading something new. I mean, I do read a lot of new stuff, but actually last night i I went back to this fifth volume of the Williams stories by richmore crompton, uh who I think is one of the funniest writers in the English language, and they're all written mostly in the twenties and thirties and um she was, she also wrote adult novels, but she's mostly known for Just William. And she lived an interesting life um, because she was, she, I think she had polio when she was a young woman. So she had quite a lot of pain. Mm. You know, there's quite a lot of personal pain. She lived quite a um, constrained life. But the stories are so fantastically ebullient and funny and light and ridiculous, and she also has that, she's got the most incredible ear for young boys' dialogue and (laughs) nonsense. Um, And the best story in this volume is called William's Truthful Christmas, and it's a brilliant idea. It's just that William has to go and stay with his uncle and aunt for Christmas, and it's purgatory, he hates Christmas, (laughs) because he has to sort of go to church and do all these things that a 1920s, 30s sort of middle-class boy might have to do. And the vicar says, um, this Christmas, let's make it different. Let's cast aside deceit and hypocrisy and speak the truth to one another.
2: <laughs> and this is
3: the first time that William's paid any attention to the sermon. And he just spends the whole Christmas telling everyone he meets the truth about the presents, about them, about what they look like. It is absolutely blissful. It's so funny. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. I really really want to read this. That's that's all we have time
0: for. So we leave you on Still William. Uh, So Mm. that's Still William. I know under your chair I can see there was a Milton that was possibly going to come out and various others. Yeah, Milton, you know, a few other
3: things. First poems in English, but yeah, (laughs) Richmond Crompton. um, Thank you very much. Will Eves'
0: Murmur is now available from Canongate uh, and uh, I highly recommend you get that. Uh, Beck, what have you got coming up?
2: I'm off to Edinburgh. Off to Edinburgh. So, in fact, by the time this
0: goes out, you probably will be in Edinburgh, I would imagine. And, uh, again, where are you?
2: I'm at the 10 Dome Pleasance at 5.40 every day. And it's called I'll Be Back. And it's about me going to the future.
0: Brilliant and uh, oh yeah I saw you do, yeah there's various little bits of research I keep seeing going up on Twitter so also follow on that to find out what's going on uh, I'm doing very little apart from I'm going to do the End of the Road Festival and Beautiful Days Festival and uh, I've probably already done Port Elliot Festival by the time this goes out and then I'll be on tour in the UK with Brian Cox and also at Scandinavia and then I've got my solo tour starting in Southport in the UK so those are all the things that we are doing this is very much for those of you who are old enough the moment where you go and Richard Todd is par- currently appearing in In a business of murder at the Yvonne Arno Theatre which was such a lovely thing and I know we talked about it before but it used to be wonderful didn't it when BBC programmes would end and they would tell you what Googie Withers was currently doing that was the end of the play Googie Withers can currently be seen at the Oxford Playhouse in Pierre Gint anyway so uh, (laughs) um, thanks for listening Uh, if you get a chance subscribe to this and uh, if you have got some spare money please give it to us so that we can continue to come into a studio and do this uh, you know inside with cups of tea Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. Uh, Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us or five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms, other podcast platforms uh, or train platforms uh, work. Go up and tell someone on a train platform that you would give bookshambles Five stars, Uh, that would be great as well. Uh, Lots of live events, Uh, come and see us at various places. Cosmicshambles.com has got all that information. Uh, And just a quick uh, note at the end of this episode as well, uh, this week saw the passing of uh, the brilliant human being and writer, Tony Morrison, uh, who is someone that we've talked about on countless episodes of Book Shambles, uh praising her writing her essays her novels uh, beloved obviously the most well known of those if you haven't um read any of Toni morrison's work a final just book recommendation this week from everyone at shambles do yourself a favor and go out and read some Toni Morrison. Uh, I just picked up uh, her mouthful of blood collection of essays and speeches uh, this week, actually, just uh, a couple of days before uh, it was announced that she had died. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. So go out and get yourself some Toni Morrison. You cannot go wrong with that. Uh, Have a great week. Enjoy whatever it is you've got to do. And we will be back next week with another new episode.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.